All right. We are going to move now to jump into the Word of God. If you're new or visiting today, um, we typically just kind of march through books of the Bible. And we've been in the book of Philippians for a couple months with a little break here and there, but we are in the book of Philippians still. And if you did not bring a Bible, there should be one in front of you or in the pew uh, beside you. Um, And today we'll be on page 981. And especially, yeah, if you haven't been with us from the beginning of Philippians, I'll just give you a snapshot of what it is. It's a letter. It's basically a thank you letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, in the year 60 A.D., which was about 10 years after the Philippian church started. And it started at the hands and the ministry of Paul. And so Paul is writing a letter to them from prison, having received uh, a gift from them. And so he's writing basically a thank you and an encouragement letter to them in four dense and incredible chapters. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 19 through 24 this morning. Let's just go ahead and dive into it right now. Philippians 2 verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So for the last chapter or so, Paul has been encouraging this church to live in this very pagan and Roman colony called Philippi uh, as citizens of a different kingdom. Yes, Caesar is Lord, in a sense, but more than that, Jesus is now Lord. And so they, they are citizens of a different kingdom with a different king. And so essentially what he's been encouraging them in is to be Christians in a non-Christian environment. That's what he wants them to know how to do and how to do it well. And so then we see him now transitioning. And what is he doing? He's, He's really transitioning back to what we would expect in a letter to a friend, which is, when are we going to see each other again? What's the next steps? Uh, what's going on with you? you know? And Paul, he's confident that he will see them again soon, as we see in verse 24. But there are two people that will see this church before him. First, Timothy, he mentions, and then Epaphroditus. So that's a long, fancy name, Epaphroditus. It's the name of the guy who came from Philippi carrying the care package from this church to Paul. And so next week we're going to dive into his story. 
but he's really the, the one who originally came from them to Paul, and Paul is writing a letter of thanks and giving it to Epaphroditus to take back to Philippi. And so he's going to send him back first, but then in order that Paul might hear sort of how they end up doing, he says, I'm also going to send you Timothy. That way he can, he can go hang out with you guys for a little bit and then bring me news of you that I can be cheered, that I can see that my letter encouraged you and that you then started walking again in unity because there's some conflict too going on in this church. And so finally, after these two men come and go, Paul says that he too, himself, plans on visiting them. That's his goal. That's his desire. Lord willing, if he's released from prison. Really, all this is is logistics, plans. This is kind of like the boring stuff of a letter. And, but the cool thing is about Paul is that he cannot help himself. That in a section of the letter that should be dry and boring, travel logistics, he makes them sing. And so, in the same breath as taking care of some business, he takes the opportunity to use these two men as real-life examples of everything he has discussed up to this point. So most of us, when we are taught theory of any kind, you know, whether it's, whether it's theology or chemistry or software or piano or medicine, you know, we, we want to know how it shakes out in real life. Okay, yeah, you gave me the definition of a word. How can I use it in a sentence? You know, okay, now I know how to read music. How can I play music? Great, now I know the physiology of a heart attack. How do I know if someone's having one? Right? We need to know how these things shake out in real life. We need an example. And so Paul, he's been hammering home the concept of what we're looking at today, which is gospel selflessness. You know, back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what he wants them to do. That's not easy to do. And so he even goes so far as to give us the cosmic life story of Jesus Christ himself as the great illustration, as the great example. But now, as he turns his attention and starts letting them know his future plans, his plans for himself, his plans for them, he discovers a great illustration. You know, he says, you know, I'm hopefully going to send you Timothy Wait, Timothy, you know Timothy, just look at him. You know, I've been telling you all this stuff about being selfless, but all you need to do is look at him. Look at how he acts. Look at what he prioritizes. Look at his life. So we can learn about gospel selflessness through Timothy, through his example. And so in these logistical verses, we find some golden nuggets of how 
gospel selflessness happens in real life. You know, first we'll look at what gospel selflessness looks like. But then we're going to look at how to embrace it. And then finally, how do we sustain it? So what it looks like, how to embrace it, and how to sustain it. So let's pray. Dear Father, we just thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is powerful. Lord, that it is, it can uh, make us into who we need to be for your sake. It, as Second uh, Timothy, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy says that your word can train us, can correct us, can rebuke us, can form us into the men and women of God that we need to be. And so I pray that a little bit or a lot of that process would take place even this morning. In Jesus' name and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so what does gospel selflessness look like? Look again at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Notice first that Paul cannot help but sneak Jesus into everything he says and thinks. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. And in verse 24, he finishes by saying, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to. Sandwiched with all of his plans and logistics is one caveat, one hinge. This is all in the Lord. Jesus has the authority to change my plans whenever he wants. And so I hope and I trust all of these things in his name. And so when we come face to face, like Paul did, with the goodness of Jesus and who he is and what he's like and what he wants from us and what he's done for us, we can't help but center him in everything we do, just like Paul does. And so Paul, in the Lord Jesus, wants to send Timothy. We've already met Timothy. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So Timothy, in a sense, is the co-author of this letter. Not necessarily because he helped write it or pen it, but he's right there. He's the one who's with Paul. Most uh, scholars think Timothy is the closest friend Paul ever had. In the two letters that we have, which is awesome, of Paul written to Timothy specifically, he calls him my true child in the faith, my beloved child. So Paul calls him child. He actually Uh, The word there for son in verse 22 is actually just the word child. So he calls him his child. And this makes sense. He's, He's really his spiritual father. You know, Timothy grew up in a Christian household, so to speak, but it was his mom. 
It was his mom and his grandma who believed in Jesus. His dad was not a believer. He was, he was a Gentile and did not accept Jesus. And so Paul, who met Timothy on the same trip as he planted the Philippian church, he meets Timothy and he likes him so much that he takes him along. And really from that point on, other than sending him to different churches, they are like two peas in a pot. And so Timothy was present for the planting of this church. This church, the people in this church know this guy. They knew him too. And so Paul says, okay, you want a real-life example of someone who exemplifies the selflessness of Jesus? You want to know what this looks like in practice? Just look at the life of Timothy. You need look no further. And they would have known because they would have been around him. They would have seen his life. You know, I could do the same thing with many people sitting in this room. I could say, you want to know what the selflessness of Jesus looks like? Look at her. Look at him. Look at her. We have those people in our midst too. And Paul wants us to embrace that. To be able to look at one another's lives and say, wow, you are living your life for Jesus. I want to do that too. And so, how does Paul describe Timothy? Verse 20, it says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So let's look at a couple of those words to unpack that statement about Timothy. Firstly, that phrase, like him. It actually means like-minded or of a kindred spirit. And we can even go into the Greek, which, which is, you can kind of guess the meaning, even if you don't know Greek. The word is isopsychos, one-mindedness, like-minded, kindred spirit. Paul says, I don't know anyone else who's as much obsessive over the care of other people's souls as Timothy. And so Paul is genuinely concerned for these people's well-being, and Timothy shares that same level of concern. And then that word concern. So he says, I have no one like-minded who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. And that's an interesting word because it's the same word as anxious. Paul says in chapter 4 later, he says, do not be anxious about anything. And Jesus says the same thing. Don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious. So what is Paul doing here? You know, when we think of the word anxious, it's with a negative connotation, and, and rightly so, because most of the time, our anxiety is self-focused, for one, and it's unnecessary for another. In light of God's goodness and faithfulness, but Paul here, he flips that word positively. And he says, Timothy is so attuned to other people's needs that you could call it anxiety. That he is anxious for the needs of other people. He's anxious for your welfare. And so this isn't super flashy, but we can see this as a definition of what gospel selflessness looks like. It's being genuinely or truly or sincerely or actually concerned 
even anxious for the needs and the welfare of others. That's what selflessness looks like. And in our current culture, this is both celebrated and undervalued at the same time. You know, I say celebrated because who's going to come out and say it's not good to be selfless? (laughs) No one's going to come out and say that. Most people would admit that they would like to be more selfless and less selfish. But I say this is undervalued because selfishness has made a comeback. Selfishness is in vogue. Don't get me wrong. I am all about self-care. Truly. You know, God desires that we take care of ourselves and our bodies. He does. He desires that we do that. He desires that we rest. He desires that we rightly prioritize our needs. Jesus said, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that command assumes you are loving yourself well. And many of us struggle to do that. We, we don't even know what we need. But right now in our cultural moment, selfishness is glorified. But as followers of Jesus, we are invited in a different direction. We are invited toward selflessness, toward a genuine concern for others. And that's what Timothy exemplified. And of course, that's what Jesus exemplified. That's our ideal. But how do we get there? How do we embrace gospel selflessness? Look at verse 21. It says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This verse is weird. And for a couple reasons. You know, first, it seems like Paul is throwing somebody under the bus. For they all seek their own interests. <laughs> Who is he talking about? Who is he throwing under the bus right now? We don't really know. You know, it's, it's not likely he's talking about someone who's with him, because that's awkward. Or anyone maybe that they would know. We don't really know. It it could be he's talking about the people he mentioned in chapter 1 who are preaching Christ, but from selfish motives to kind of rub it in Paul's face. It could be he's talking about them. Or it could be a bit of hyperbole, like exaggerating to emphasize how awesome Timothy is. You know, relative to Timothy, all y'all seek your own interests. This guy knows what he's doing. He's one of a kind. But the second reason this verse is strange is the contrast he makes. You know, you would expect him to say, for they all seek their own interests, not those of others. Right? And you'd have good reason to expect him to say that because he already said it. In chapter 2, he said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
But that's not what he says here. And I think it's intentional and profound. How do we embrace gospel selflessness? We do it not by looking out for number one, but by embracing the interests of Jesus Christ. This flips it all upside down. When we make it our aim to align ourselves with Jesus' agenda, we end up being selfless. Why does this work? First, when we try to be selfless in our own strength, we end up burning out. And a lot of times when we burn out on our own energy to be selfless, we swing the pendulum right on back towards selfishness. We say, oh, I tried to love that person, but it didn't work, so I'm going to eat a pint of ice cream right now. We burn out on our own strength. But when we receive our marching orders from Jesus, we can rightly balance self-care and service, rest and expending energy. Because we're receiving our marching orders from him, and only he knows how to rightly order our lives, how to rightly limit ourselves, and to know what's ours and what's not ours to fix. But second, when we try to be selfless in our own strength, we often look for signs that other people are appreciating our efforts. But when we're serving people in the name of Christ, when we're not trying to serve others to please them, but we're serving others to please him, he's the one we receive our approval from. And we can serve people without needing approval, without needing validation, without needing even thanks. So why does this work? Because of who Jesus is. And what he's like. He is more interested in the welfare of others than you are. He is more interested in your welfare than you are. He's better at self-care for you than you are. And so when we make our interests not our own, but those of him, then we become selfless. It's glorious. Do you believe that? And this is one thing to believe it with your head, but do you believe it with your body? Do you believe it with your calendar? Do you believe it with all of you? Have you experienced the freedom of submitting the care of yourself to him? When you do that, he alone can give you the heart and the love that you need to put others before yourself. He alone can empower you with the strength and energy that you need to truly care for the needs of others. But how do we sustain that? You know, we're, we're all about sustainability, right? Not just in, like, energy and, you know, political stuff, but, like, I don't know if I can do that all the time. It just doesn't seem sustainable for me. 
You know, we want, we want to put things into practice in our lives that, is, that are sustainable. That we can do not just tomorrow, but in three weeks, and three months, and three years. Great. You know, Paul, that's all well and good, but how am I going to do that day in and day out for life? Timothy shows us how. Look at verse 22. It says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So how do we sustain gospel selflessness? Well, Paul calls attention to Timothy's, it says, proven worth. In Europe, translation might say proven character. That works too. Because Paul isn't just saying, Timothy's awesome, guys, trust me. No, he's saying Timothy has been through it and he has proved himself. The word actually talks about in other places intense testing and intense suffering and trial and yet perseverance. And over time, Timothy has shown over the long haul that he can sustain this gospel selflessness. And how does he do it? We see, we see two ways that he sustained this. First, Paul says, as a son with a father, he served with me. And so first we see him sustaining this gospel selflessness by cultivating gospel-centered relationships. You know, Paul borrows here from the culture of the day. A son would often, most often, probably 99 times out of 100, pick up the trade of his father. You know, that was what you did. You do what your dad did. And how that happened was basically by apprenticing with him from a young age. You know, a lot of us who have sons or daughters, it's fun as they get to that age where they can like help you with stuff that you care about too where you're working on something that's part of your passion, your project, your hobby or whatever, and they're like, can I help with that? Can I be right there with you? And, you know, you're showing them, and they're right there. And that's what he's talking about. As a son with a father, Timothy was right there and learned the trade, the trade of being a missionary, the trade of preaching, the trade of uh, teaching the scripture, the trade of, of loving people in Jesus' name. Timothy was there and he learned it. And so Paul is totally on board with discipleship by imitation. And we see him reiterate this in this book. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. You know, right He's, he's going into an example of Timothy right now. He's going to go into an example with Epaphroditus. And then he's going to, going to go into an example of himself here in the next chapter. And then he caps it off in verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is all about finding people who are mature in Jesus, hitching along with them and learning the trade. Learn what they do. Do what they do. Watch them. 
and then put it into practice. In verse 9 of chapter 4, he says the same thing. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's not just talking about read the Bible, read the stuff I'm writing. He's saying, look at me, look at how I do it and do it like that. He's all about this imitation. And so the first way we see Timothy sustaining this gospel selflessness is to have close, intimate relationships with other more mature believers. Like Paul, who could mentor him, who could help him along, who could keep him grounded in difficult times. This is very important. We all need this. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. You need people in your life who've been doing it longer. You need that. I need that. I'll tell you right now, I would not be standing here before you if I did not have that in the past and right now. This is completely and utterly necessary for our walk with Jesus. And it doesn't have to be one person. In fact, I would recommend it be more than one person. And it, but it does need to be intentional. You know, it doesn't have to be like, sign the dotted line, you're my official mentor in Christ. No, but it's not just going to happen. You do need to, to, to pursue it, to seek it. So that's the first way that Timothy sustains this gospel selflessness. What's the second way? Verse 22 finishes, it says, As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And so second, we do this by embracing a gospel-centered purpose in life. So Timothy, inspired by Paul, he gave himself to a lifetime of service for the gospel. Did you know that having purpose in life is one of the most important things for your mental health. That a lack of purpose corresponds to higher rates of depression. And you're six times more likely to be addicted to pornography if you don't have purpose in life. Purpose in life is so important. And this makes total sense. If, if you don't know why you're here on earth, then of course life is going to naturally feel aimless. Because where are you going? What are you here for? Can the gospel provide purpose for you? Absolutely. Because if the gospel is true, then you are made in the image of God and have innate value and worth. If the gospel is true, then your talents, interests, and passions can be a reflection of your creator. And he can, be, and he can use those things to bless people and glorify him. If the gospel is true, then you can participate in God's grand work of making his love known to the ends of the earth. And this includes every place you go. 
I can't go every place you go. We all can't be every place you are. To some people in this world, you might be one of the few who can display God's love. That is a powerful calling. That is a powerful vocation. That is a powerful purpose. You don't have to be a professional Christian for the gospel to inform your purpose in life. So, becoming a person who embodies gospel selflessness like Timothy, what does it hinge on? It hinges on our ability to see the beauty of Jesus. All of this hinges on that. Because that's what it looks like. Jesus was genuinely, truly concerned for your welfare. Jesus' interests are better and more selfless than yours. Jesus can sustain you for the long haul. Paul says that there are many who seek their own interests and not those of Jesus. So what does Jesus say? You know, he says to seek first, it's the same word, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, he says. What are the things Jesus is talking about there? There are basic needs. Food, clothing, shelter, any other thing that we need. And I would put in that category purpose, meaning, fulfillment, peace, love, relationships, Jesus says that your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, he says. He knows that you need them. He knows that you're needy, but that you do not need to toil for them. If we see the beauty of Jesus in his kingdom, if we give our lives to pursuing that kingdom in our lives and in our world, then God promises to take care of us. That we can take, in the, take that fork in the road that the ancient people of Israel had a hard time taking. We can reject the fork in the road of immediate gratification. And we can accept the fork in the road of God is bringing us somewhere and it's going to be good. The original person of faith, Abraham himself, God said, Abraham, leave your father and mother Come away from your hometown and come with me to a land that I will show you. He didn't say, it's going to look like this. It's, here's the map. It's going to be hard. It's going to be in this many hundreds of years. No, he said, just trust me on this. Trust me on this because I'm good. I know what I'm doing. And I'm powerful enough and sovereign enough to be able to reach down and do things in your life that you can't make up. I'm trustworthy. And so God promises to take care of us. And that also means he'll help us become less selfish and more selfless. Because that's what his kingdom is all about. 
Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you so much for the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. We thank you so much that you are better at caring for us than we are. I pray for each person in this room this morning. I pray if if there is anything keeping them from trusting you with their life, I pray that you would speak to them. Help them to understand that you love them so much. You love them more than they even can love themselves. And you can help their lives to mean something. You can get them on their feet. But even more than that, you can bolster them and empower them to accomplish great things in the name of Jesus. We praise you for that. We entrust our lives to you again this morning. We want to serve the kingdom of Jesus. We recognize that that kingdom is better than the kingdoms of this world, especially the kingdoms we make for ourselves. Help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So 